All right, Luke chapter 2 will be our starting passage this morning. Luke chapter 2. It says verses 8 through 14, although this development is actually going to take us all the way down to verse 24, or verse 20 rather, as this outline includes information from verses 15 through 20 as it pertains to the shepherds. Alright, Luke chapter 2. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer. And we can turn the volume down just a touch. There we go. Thank you. Their heads bowed and their eyes closed, shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we study this morning. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright, Luke chapter 2, we're dealing with the proclamation by the angels in verses 8 through 14, as well as the uh, arrival of the shepherds in verses 15 through 20. It says in Luke 2, 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord, suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is well pleased, or peace among men of good will. Alright, we have just barely touched upon this last week with the introduction. There are a total of five points of study in this text, and we uh, left off having wrapped up, actually not, having just barely looked at point one and the subpoints A and B. Point one then, shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. The language that is expressed here in this text indicates that these are uh, full-time as opposed to part-time shepherds. This is not a seasonal thing. This is not... Uh, of the sort where we might be able to peg what season it is based upon what time of year it is that they're out there in the fields, uh, whether they're in the high pasture or low pasture, all the different debates that have raged through the centuries. It is a present active participle of agroleo, that this is where they live. This is their residence. They are full-time, outdoor-dwelling shepherds. And they are watching watch or guarding guard. We have the participle of phulasa with the noun of phulakis, um, our, our phulake root system of words, uh, means guard or defend. It's even where the English term prophylactic comes from. It is a guarding or a defending, uh, stopping kind of concept. And they are phulasantes phulakas. They are guarding guard or watching watch, indicating the, the doubling of the uh, vocabulary indicating the urgency of their activity. Keeping watch over the flock by night. Now, this is the region of Bethlehem. This is the region of not only scriptural prophecy, but also the region of uh, tradition. The, the region of, shall we say, legend. Which is what we started to introduce last week. Subpoint A, the Jewish people anticipated the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem for scriptural reasons. And we understand that from Micah 5.2. There were other geographical prophecies in the Old Testament. For instance, Egypt, uh, Basra, uh, Galilee. There were other geographic prophecies in the Old Testament that pertained to the coming Christ. But the one that pertained to his birthplace was undisputed as being the Bethlehem prophecy of Micah 5.2. That was uh, widely understood and really undisputed by this point of time. But then we want to also understand in point B that the 
Jewish people also anticipated the Messiah to be revealed from Migdal Eder, what we have here, the Tower of the Flock. The Tower of the Flock. In this region, where these shepherds are, the very location that is being described here in Luke chapter 2, was a location that conformed to Jewish legend. Alfred Edersheim records this in his work, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. He himself was citing the Targum. In this case, the Targum was specifically Pseudo-Jonathan and his Targum commentary on Genesis 35.21. The Targums, if you're not familiar with them, arose after the exile, uh, shall we say, in the intertestamental period of time, when in reality... Uh, Hebrew became uh, less and less common among the Jewish people. The common population of the Jewish people were speaking Aramaic. Pretty much only the scribes, Pharisees, scholars, priests, and so forth still had a working knowledge of what we consider biblical Hebrew. The, the common language being Aramaic. Well, the Targums were commentaries. They were text commentaries of the Old Testament from the uh, biblical Hebrew, but written in Aramaic. So we would think of them as Bible commentaries in the common language, so to speak. And they tended to follow a verse-by-verse type of approach or a chapter-by-chapter type of approach as they not only translated for a non-Hebrew-speaking Jewish people, but also um, interpreted, also expanded, sometimes um, very colorfully uh, annotated based upon rabbinic uh, traditions or rabbinic understandings and so forth. The Targums are very interesting uh, for text criticism reasons at, at reconstructing if there's a uh, if there's a disputed text, if it's not certain, if uh, if maybe there's a distinction between the, the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek Septuagint text, quite oftentimes you can go to the Targum and find the Aramaic rendering and, and gain uh, an insight or a clue as to what the original manuscript might have said. So citing the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan on Genesis 35.21 if you want to turn over to Genesis 35:21 for a moment, it has uh, nothing to do with Christ in this passage. But Genesis chapter 35 is the passage where Jacob is renamed Israel, so it is a significant text in the Old Testament for the Jewish people. And he uh, has wrestled with the angel, and he's renamed Israel. And he sets up a pillar in this place, in verse 14, pours oil on it. They journeyed from Bethel, in verse 16. And this is where Rachel will give birth to Benjamin, and then she will die. Uh, Verse 20, Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then verse 21, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent, Beyond the Tower of Eder. Alright, here's Migdal Eder. And this is the extent of the biblical account of this event. This is the Bethlehem region. This is where the uh, tomb of Rachel is to this day. It says in verse 19, Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. The clan uh, leader of the of this particular region within the tribe of Judah was Ephrathah, Benjamin of Ephrathah, too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth uh, the Savior. Now that was the biblical prophecy from Micah chapter 5. Now in the Targum, the commentary on this very passage, which we just finished reading, Notice we didn't find anything in this passage about the Christ, okay? But we had Jacob renamed Israel and the birth of his twelfth son or the twelfth tribe and uh, the death of, of Rachel and she's buried here uh, in the neighborhood of, of Bethlehem and the uh, where he pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, the Migdal Eder, Tower of the Flock. Here is the actual citation from Pseudo-Jonathan. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob erected a pillar over the house of burying, which is the pillar of the tomb of Rachel unto this day. And Jacob proceeded and spread his tent beyond the tower of Eder, the place from whence it is to be the king Messiah will be revealed at the end of the days. 
<coughs> okay? It's not in our Bibles. It's not in the Hebrew text. But it was a long-standing tradition that had been preserved in this <coughs> particular uh, Targum, the Aramaic commentary on the Hebrew Old Testament. So it's interesting that this being a long-held tradition, a long-held expectation, anticipation, not grounded on biblical revelation, certainly, but whatever it was based upon, this was an expectation. And I find it remarkable that not only did God fulfill what he was obligated to fulfill in terms of his own canonical scriptural prophecies and promises, but he even went so far in the selection of his witnesses when he went out to gather these shepherds, even went so far as to validate some of their own expectations with respect to his appearance. Again, quoting from the Targum, the Tower of Eder, the place from whence it is to be, the King Messiah will be revealed at the end of days. Point C. Something else we know about these very same fields According to the Mishnah, the sheep in these fields were destined for te temple sacrifices. According to the Mishnah, we've had a lot of information on Sunday evenings here recently on the Mishnah, on the Jewish recordings with respect to their traditions, with respect to their own customs, practices, um, uh, requirements under the law, expectations, and so forth. And the Mishnah was not written until... Uh, the centuries after Christ, but they recorded the oral traditions that preceded Christ in these centuries. The sheep in these fields were destined for temple sacrifices, and you find this in the Shakalim uh, 7 and section 4. Again, quite remarkable. And this, by the way, is fairly well substantiated, not only in the, in the Mishnah, but also Josephus and other records as well. Just consider how many sacrifices had to be offered in the temple. Daily, morning, evening, the seasonal sacrifices, the uh, Passover sacrifices, the uh, Feast of Trumpets that, that offered more animals than any other time of the year. Uh, a considerable number of animals had to be offered in the temple on an annual basis, and they had to be raised somewhere. All right, well, this is where primarily where the temple sacrifices were raised, where they could be protected, where they could be guarded, where they could be observed, uh, where the ones with spots and blemishes could be separated out and so forth. This was the, the uh, approved location for Levitical offerings uh, for these animals to be raised. Again, there's a lot of imagery here. It's quite interesting to see that here is the Lamb of God who's being born to take away the sin of the world and the very shepherds that are trained to watch for spotless lambs, the very shepherds that have, have the discerning eye to observe which sheep are acceptable for sacrifice and which have to be removed and to care for these sacrificial lambs are the very same shepherds that are being called upon to witness the birth of the true lamb, the lamb of God, the lamb without spot and blemish. And I find that to be remarkable as well. Point D. These very fields were plagued by lions and bears. Remember, these are the same fields around Bethlehem where David, as a boy a thousand years earlier, would tell his stories of the activities that he was engaged with in his childhood in 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 through 36. I think sometimes we lose track of the flow of the, of the biblical record because from our perspective, <clears throat> 2,000 or 3,000 years later, these are, you know, these are Bible stories and they're kind of separated by time and distance and so forth. But this was their history. This was their heritage, their land. And these uh, shepherds that were anticipating the coming son of David to reign over them had to be fully aware of the fact that they were serving in the very same locations where a, a millennia earlier their forefather David had been working. See, can you imagine? Yeah, being a shepherd out there in these fields around Ephrathah, Bethlehem Ephrathah, knowing that these were the very fields where where uh, your uh, your great king David grew up. 
I mean, the story there is in 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 36, where uh, in the Goliath chapter there, David is trying to reassure Saul that he's uh, he's up to the task. He's not afraid of the giant, and he uh, he's handled lions and bears in the past. And um, I guess it's been a little while since we've read through there. Let's look at it. 1 Samuel 17. I was tempted just to blow it off and say we, we handled this recently in the Life of David series. Well, that was probably three years ago now, and maybe that's not all that recent. You might have slept once or twice since then, so let's look at it here in 1 Samuel 17. David uh, was kind of shocked, actually. He kept asking, you know, what's what's the reward going to be, and how come nobody's taken the king up on this offer here? <laughs> you know, now all the his brothers and all the other soldiers keep talking about what Saul's going to offer. You know, Saul's going to give the hand of his daughter in marriage. You know, what a prize. And uh, all you got to do is go kill that giant. And, and David's kind of shocked that no one's done it yet. You know, why why is this offer still on the table? You know. And uh, so David said, well, you know, I'll go do it. What's the big deal? And so uh, in verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him, for your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He says, no big deal. I'll go take care of it. Okay. We estimated that he's probably 12, 14 years old at this point. He'd been sent by uh, his father to bring food and supplies and things to his older brothers, the ones who were old enough to be in the army. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flocks. He's describing at least two incidents here, a lion incident and a bear incident. And it appears to be that there were quite likely multiple instances of both. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. <clears throat> and when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Notice, not just he doesn't say this nine-foot-tall, 500-pound Philistine. He says this uncircumcised Philistine. And if you were with us on Sunday night, we got a good dose of what circumcision's all about. In fact, there'll be more of that coming up here in our Life of Christ series, because here in Luke chapter 2, he's going to be circumcised on his eighth day, and all of the principles and teachings on circumcision uh, just seem to keep coming up here recently. But he doesn't call him the, the giant Philistine, or the warrior Philistine, or the nine-foot, 500-pound Philistine with the, with the long spear. He says he is the uncircumcised Philistine. Now, in earthly terms, that would seem to have no impact on any pending uh, you know, battle. <laughs> it would not seem to, to affect any single combat between David and Goliath, whether the, you know, the participants were circumcised or not. But that's in the physical realm. In the spiritual realm, it makes all the difference in the world, because David is, of course, a, a uh, member of the covenant nation of Israel, and the Philistine is one of the godless heathen, and, and uh, David understood where the battle truly was. So he calls him this uncircumcised Philistine. He'll be like one of them, that is the lion or the bear, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Remember earlier in this chapter, the, the giant was cursing them by his gods. Cursing them by his gods. You know, David understood in verse 26... He says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? It was, a, it was a matter of defending the honor of Jehovah, the honor of the Lord. And Israel was being reproached and insulted for this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God. So uh, to conclude this then in verse uh, 36... Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, that's Jehovah, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. See, it says no big deal. It says it's no different than the lion or the bear. This is going to happen, and, and the Lord's going to take care of it. The battle is the Lord's. So, these are the fields that we're dealing with. These fields around Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Okay, Bethlehem Ephrathah, as opposed to several other Bethlehems that can be identified geographically in the nation of Israel. All right.
Back to Luke 2 then, and we focus on the angels, point 2. An angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Which I find to be interesting, use of prepositions. Remember, angels produce no glory of themselves. They do reflect the Lord's glory, however. Luke chapter 2. And uh, a multitude of the heavenly hosts is present for this event. Not visible to the human observation until initially one angel, I believe Gabriel, and then all the angels then were allowed to be observed visually by the human realm. But the angel stood before them, it says in verse 9, an angel of the Lord, and it's the same language that we had in chapter 1, in verse 11, in verse 19, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord was Jesus Christ in the Old Testament in a pre-incarnation Christophany. We've gone through that several times. I send you through the Bible notebooks. When Jesus Christ, God the Son, appeared on earth prior to the manger, he uh, appeared in a variety of forms, including the burning bush, including, uh, most commonly, the angel of the Lord. Several times throughout the Old Testament, and that's pretty clear. But the angel of the Lord does not reappear again after the manger, because now he is the Word made flesh. He is now uh, God, the very God in human form, occupying the humanity of the body that the Father prepared. All right, and stood before them. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, preposition, uh, pra, or pros, right there before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. See, there's multiple angels here on the scene already. It's just that they don't become visible until verse 13. The glory is already surrounding them, but the, the visible observation of those angels does not occur until verse 13 where suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying. See, the angels around us constantly, we just don't have visual awareness of them most of the time. Or shall we say, all of the time. All right, If I have ever visibly seen an angel, I'm not aware of it. <laughs> he probably appeared in human form and I didn't realize he was an angel. You know, the New Testament does tell us it's conceivable that we can play hospitality to angels and not really know what we're dealing with as angels tend to walk this earth on various missions, uh, disguised as humans, and so forth. Probably a better passage than this, if I can think of it, is in First Kings with Elisha and his servant, and they thought they were surrounded by the armies, and Elisha told his servant, said, what are you talking about? We've got them surrounded. <laughs> you know? It's, it's only looking at it in human terms where you think you're surrounded. Okay? Where is that? Is that chapter 4? 1 Kings chapter 4. Could be wrong. Not exactly bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. Uh, 1 Kings... No, it can't be chapter 4. That's still too early. That's still uh, Elijah. We don't get to Elisha until 2 Kings. See, this is where... Uh, maybe it's 2 Kings chapter 4. This is where memorizing chapter titles would really help you would really help me anyway. Okay, I'll find it after class and we'll bring it up again next week unless someone can spot it here real quickly. 6.15, okay. Yep, that's the one. Thank you. Outstanding. Is your husband a deacon? All right, good thing. <laughs> All right. Second Kings chapter 6. And um, he's all worked up about this. About the horses and chariots and a great army. They came by night and surrounded the city in verse 14. When the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall I do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Say, what are you worried about? We got them outnumbered. 
Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. See, I wonder exactly how frequently the prophets had the ability to observe the angelic realm. For Elisha, it seemed to be a matter of course. It seemed to be uh, a common feature. And so he prays to extend that privilege to his servant. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. So, you know, they're, they're surrounding us. We have our guardian angels. The, the Lord of hosts is presently working. and We just don't often have the eyes to see it. As Ephesians 6 would tell us, that our struggle is against, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers, the cosmic forces of darkness. All right, so returning now to, back to Luke 2 again, the appearance of the angels. This will be a concept that we will refer to several times throughout the Life of Christ series because the angels are going to be around him throughout his ministry. At the temptation, uh, at the cross, at the Garden of Gethsemane, at various places throughout his ministry we will have, um, we will observe angelic involvement. Point three, the angel's message. Let's detail the angel's message in verses 10 through 12. He starts off with, do not be afraid. <laughs> this appears to be Gabriel's standard calling call, you know, calling card. Some people have typical lines, you know. You ever watch James Bond? He's the, you know, the Bond, James Bond kind of line. You wouldn't admit it if you watched those kind of movies, I know. All right, but you have taglines, and you know, you know them by their taglines. Well, uh, Gabriel's tagline appears to be, do not be afraid. We have it a couple of times in chapter 1. We have it over in Matthew when he appears to uh, Joseph. And it's back in Daniel when he appears to Daniel. It seems to be a standard tagline for Gabriel. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. Behold, I evangelize. Behold, I evangelize. Now let's start off with some point A. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. There's two ways that the Greek language can express a prohibition such as this. In this sense, it is may plus the present imperative, may phobesta. And in this construction, the imperative is, is recognizes that the activity has already started, and so you render it stop, stop being afraid. There's a difference between telling somebody to not begin doing something if they haven't started it yet. Or if they've already started it, then you're telling them stop. Okay. In both cases, they're prohibitions. You're saying, don't do this. All right? Don't, you know, whatever. Pick a, you know, pick a commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Okay? Or thou shalt not bear false witness. Or thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, pick any prohibition you'd like of thou shalt nots. Okay? Well, if, if you've not yet begun the activity, we say in the English language, we say, don't. Don't do this. Don't start doing this. Okay? You haven't done it yet, but don't do it. Or, if the activity has already started, we don't just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, I've already done it. No big deal. Let's just keep living this way. No. Okay? We say, all right, you started the activity, but stop. As of now, stop. From this moment forward, stop. Confess whatever you've done already. That's a sin. Name it before, Christ, before the Father. Confess in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not a license to just go ahead and keep doing it because you're doing it already. What's that? Okay. Stop doing it. And that's what we have here. We have may phobesta. We have may plus the present uh, tense of phobetamai. Stop being afraid. As I mentioned, it was used a couple times in Luke 1, verse 13 and verse 30. Also Daniel, chapter 9 and verse 21, chapter 10, verses 12 and 19. It appears to be a standard line for Gabriel. And you can imagine, he's, he, Gabriel stands in the presence of God. We know when Moses encountered the Lord face to face that his, the glory shone from Moses' face to where he had to keep himself veiled or he'd be knocking out you know, his people of Israel there that would just look at him by virtue of his intimacy being in the presence of God. Imagine Gabriel, who occupies the throne room and has for millennia. And he appears on the earth. There was a lot of fear associated with all of his appearances. So the first thing he had to do was calm the human trembling. Point B, or I'm sorry, sub-point one. The reasons why 
to stop being afraid or itemized. First of all, one, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you good news of great joy. In other words, I am evangelizing you. I am evangelizing you. Does that mean these shepherds were unbelievers? No. It means that the word evangelize means I'm bringing you good news. <laughs> okay? Um, evangelizing, all that means is I'm bringing you good news. Now, if you're an unbeliever and I'm bringing you the good news of salvation, then that's what we tend to think of when we say I'm evangelizing you. But I could evangelize you on all kinds of things. Say, if Stephanie ever gets around to having her baby, then we're going to evangelize you with the good news that she's had her baby. Okay? I don't know if it's happened since Sunday or not. I haven't gotten any phone calls. It's supposed to be last Sunday, and then, you know, she showed up again this Sunday and still hadn't had the baby yet. I'm, I keep trembling for a, <laughs> a Bible class childbirth. Something's going to happen right in the middle of Bible class, and all of a sudden, you know, here comes the baby. All right? It's never happened, in, in, uh, to my knowledge, in, in, <laughs> in Austin Bible Church history, but, you know, I guess there's a first time for everything. Don't have any doctors in this church. We've got several nurses, so I guess, uh, you know, such a thing could happen. But I'm bringing you good news, okay? The assurance and the encouragement that fear is not necessary is alleviated by the announcement that I'm bringing good news. And it's not, what kind of good news? Well, it's good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. Again, the verb is euangelizamai. Present active indicative, I am bringing you, presently at this time, good news of not any kind of joy, but great joy. Point two, which will be for all the people. Which will be for all the people. Notice, the Jews were the ones that were anticipating their Messiah. But his work was not just targeted to Israel. This is for the entire human race. For all the people, not just for the Jewish people in terms of Jewish expectations. Quite honestly, what the typical Jewish person was looking for was a political answer to their bondage under Rome. To the fact that they had an Edomite ruling over them in terms of Herod the Great. They hated that. To the fact that they were paying tribute to the Roman Empire. They hated that. Okay? Those who had accepted the prophecies of Daniel understood that the Babylonian Empire was replaced by the Persians, was replaced by the Greeks, was replaced by the Romans. They understood that outline. They spoke of that outline. They recognized that this mountain was going to come and smash the Romans and set up eternal righteousness upon the earth. Remember, as you and I examine the prophecies of Daniel, they were examining the prophecies of Daniel. They could see these empires unfold. They could see this uh, Roman Empire and they could anticipate that their 69 weeks were about up from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, from the issuing of that decree, which they could date and they could observe. We'll spend some time on that. In, this, in the course of this class... You're going to be experts on Daniel chapter 9. <laughs> experts on Old Testament chronology. Experts on what they were anticipating. Why was it that there was a cult prepared? <laughs> Sitting there at the gate of Jerusalem, ready to lead the Messiah in on that day. Well, because that day completed the 69 weeks. And somebody understood that. But it will be for all the people. And we have it throughout this passage here. Notice, um, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, in verse 10. And notice today, in the city of David, there has been born to you not a Messiah. There has been born to you a Savior, which is Messiah. Okay, They were anticipating a Messiah. He says, we've had a Savior born. Who is Messiah? And that's significant. Subpoint so B. The second explanation of four. There's two explanatory fours in here. Do not be afraid. Four, I bring you great news. 
I bring you good news of great joy. And then he goes on to amplify that for. This is the second part of his message, really the main issue of his message. I mean, you don't just show up and your message has to consist of more than just simply, I have good news. That's not a message. You know? You don't see that in a press conference where a guy comes out and says, I have great news today, and that's the news. See you later. (laughs) No. Just saying that you have good news isn't the good news. That's not your message. And so the angel says, I have great news. I'm bringing you good news of great joy. But he has to actually explain what that good news message is. And this is the meat of it, the content of his good news message. Today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior. There has been born to you a Savior. The primary message is the Savior. A soter. S-O-T-E-R. S-O-T-E-R. And these are both the long vowels, the long omega for the O and the long eta for the E. S-O-T-E-R. That last letter is a row. It's an R. It's not a P. Remember, P is pi, and you know what that looks like. This is the R. Soter, number 4990. That's why the doctrine of soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Soter is a savior. Soteria is salvation. Sozo is the verb to save. And so when we break down theology into its different divisions, soteriology, S-O-T-E-R, if I can write that out. See, this is where I could use that new device. I saw a new device at the store yesterday. Soter, that's S-O-T-E-R, that's our noun form for Savior. And what was I going to write up here? Soteriology got distracted drooling about the idea of a new computer device. All right, soteriology is the logos word or study of the soter, of the Savior. So this is the doctrine of or the study of salvation. And everybody has a soteriology. Everybody has a system of salvation, basically, as you understand salvation. You've got to decide. What kind of soteriology do you have? Is it by grace or is it by works? Can you deserve it? Can you lose it? On what basis are you saved? All of these all of these issues come up in your understanding of salvation. And we all have a soteriology, even if you didn't know you had a soteriology. We all do. Okay? Because we're saved. Well, why are you saved? I love asking people that when I ask, you know, are you, are you a believer? Are you saved? And quite often I get yes. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Why are you saved? How are you saved? How long have you been saved? You plan on staying saved? You know, trick questions and little things like that. And just kind of get some ideas, get some conversation going. Ask a guy, you know, are you saved? If you, if you get hit by a truck driving home from work today, are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? Oh, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, why? Well, I, I think I've been good enough. <laughs> okay. You have a very interesting soteriology. Did you know that? Now, you won't put it in those terms, but understand the person thinks that he's going to heaven, thinks he's saved, but on what basis? Because he's generally a good guy? He does more good things than bad things? Is that what he's banking on? You think you've been good enough? Well, how good do you have to be? And what if you have, you know, a string of bad days? <laughs> you know, what if the next couple of, re- of weeks you kind of line up a few bad things along the way and then you get hit by the truck? You still going to go to heaven? Where does that scale tip? Is it 50-50? Do you got to be 51-49? Or how does that work? And... Uh, you know, you, you start pursuing with people and you make them start to explain it and you find that sometimes there's a very real fuzzy soteriology at work and you have to stop and say, all right, you need the gospel. <laughs> let me just spell it out for you in terms of by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and let's start with that. So, the, the good news is not the Christ. The good news is the Savior. And I hope we can see that because it's not only key here, it's key throughout this whole thing. 
Okay? Do you think Judas Iscariot wanted a savior or do you think he wanted a, a Christ? And what do you think he thought the Christ was? Okay? That will again become a, a question because the Pharisees weren't even sure what the Christ was. They would come and they'd ask him, well, are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? When they were quizzing John the Baptist, that's coming up. And he answers no to each. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Christ. And yet we understand that the prophet is the Christ. So, as far as what exactly is a Christ, well, they were looking for political deliverance. They were looking for a king. Okay. The angel does not say, today in the city of David there has been born for you a Christ. He says, there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So point one, who is Christ. But the issue is Savior. The Savior was born. Now we have the, the additional explanation. Who is, we have the relative pronoun hos, followed by the verb esteen, hos esteen Christos. Christos, number 5547. 5547 in your Strong's Index. It means the anointed one. The verb creo means to anoint with oil. A Christos is an anointed one. That's all Christ means, is anointed one. comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, 4899, which also means anointed one. Somebody who has been anointed with oil. Mashiach is the verb to anoint, to smear. Okay? We could say the smeared one, except nowadays a smeared one is something negative. <laughs> you know, the, the press smeared you, or somebody smeared you, and it's got a negative connotation. But to be anointed with oil, to be smeared with oil, as in the case of prophets, priests, and kings, as in the case of altars, as in the case of temples, holy furnishings, utensils, anything that has been anointed sanctified, designated as holy by virtue of the anointing oil, okay, would be a anointed one. An anointed prophet, an anointed priest, an anointed king, an anointed altar, utensil, plate, spoon, temple. Think of all the things that were anointed, even stones, when we we saw earlier when Jacob established you know put that pillar up and and anointed it with oil poured oil on it it became an anointed pillar. All Christ means is anointed one. I'm talking about vocabulary now, lingu- uh, lexically. All Christ means is somebody that's been smeared. Okay, so then we have to understand theologically what is the smeared one, the anointed one, the Christ. What is he going to do? And for that, we have to understand all the prophecies made with respect to the Christ. Now, we have a good advantage for doing that because we have New Testament, God-breathed, inspired explanations of the Old Testament. And we know that he is a prophet, priest, and king. We know that he is the kinsman redeemer of the human race. We know that he is the greater son of David who is going to sit upon the throne. But we also know that he's the son of man. Not only the son of David in his Jewish royalty, but he's also son of man, the second Adam over the human race, not just the Jewish people, but all humanity. He's also son of God. So, between son of David, son of man, and son of God, we've got titles for royalty, and we need to understand that they're not all communicating the same thing. And yet they all apply to the same person. They all apply to Jesus Christ. Alright? As I mentioned, prophets were anointed, such as Moses. Uh, kings were anointed such as David, Saul. Okay, uh, Priests were anointed, Aaron, his sons. You can go back to Exodus and see when that happened there in the, in the wilderness. Um, things were anointed. Angels. There's one angel in the Bible, by the way, that's called the anointed angel. Did you know that? And that's Satan himself in Ezekiel 28. And just extra credit this morning, join me there in, in Ezekiel 28. The one angel that's called the anointed angel the one angel in all the Bible who is said to have been smeared, anointed, sanctified. So you stop and you ask yourself, well, was it as a prophet, a priest, a king? 
And I think you can find all three for the anointed cherub who covers. Ezekiel 28, 12 and following. You were in Eden, the garden of God, it says in verse 13. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Alright, so now if we're going to try to narrow down our scope of who was in Eden, <laughs> the garden of God. Well, in human beings, only Adam and Eve were in Eden and they were driven out after they sinned. But there were other beings in the garden besides human beings. There were animals, there were angels. We know the tempter was there. All right, every precious stone was your covering. Adam and Eve didn't have covering. They were naked until so they made coverings for themselves. Here's a creature that didn't have fur, didn't have feathers, didn't have things that we typically associate with natural animals. And these were his coverings. Ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, emerald, gold, workmanship of your settings and sockets. This does not describe a natural animal, but it is a very glorious descri description of the dragon prior to his fall. The creature with the settings and sockets and scales and all of this. On the day that you were created, notice this being was not born, this being was created. As Adam and Eve were created, as the angelic realm were created. And it's obvious we're talking about Satan, we're talking about the created uh, angel known as Satan before he fell. This very interesting description then in verse 14. You were the Mashiach Kerub, the anointed cherub. And it's probably Kerub HaMashiach. It's probably in the other order. The cherub, the anointed one. I have to look up the Hebrew text there. But it is Mashiach. It is anointed you were the anointed cherub who covers or who guards, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So here was a being, a very glorious being, who was full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, who had all of the glories of this wealth in, grafted upon his being itself, blameless and sinless, until he fell. Okay? Interesting description here of Satan prior to his fall. Prior to the pride that's lifted up. As we see here, verse 16, By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. Now notice at this point he's no longer called anointed cherub. At this point he's simply called covering cherub and the participle changes it's no longer the Mashiach Karub as he destroys him he calls him the guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire your heart was lifted up because of your beauty you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor keep in mind the adversary is more genius than, than you and I will ever be but in spite of all his brilliance his genius his wisdom he is insane as is described here his wisdom is corrupted by reason of your splendor. Verse 18, By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. And the very first money changer in the temple wasn't those human beings that Christ got berserk over. Here's the heavenly temple. Here's the angelic sanctuaries, plural. And Satan is involved with unrighteous trade turned the, uh, the father's house into a place of merchandise. So, when we get to that point in the life of Christ, and you see him overturning tables and making a whip of cords and doing these things, we'll have a whole new appreciation for that event. Because those Pharisee money changers weren't the first. Their father was. As is described here. Alright. There's the one place where we find a Mashiach anointed one with reference to an angelic being and it has reference to Satan himself. The issue in Luke 2 though is not that a Messiah has been born it is that a Savior has been born who is Messiah who is anointed one. 
Not only is he Messiah, not only is he anointed one, but he is also the Lord. The Lord. Kyrios for Lord, number 2962. Again, it could apply to any Lord. It could apply to any master. A slave would call his master Kyrios. You could call your king Kyrios. You can call your employer Kyrios. Women would call their husbands Kyrios. Sarah called her husband Lord Kyrios. Not that he was the Lord, mind you, but he was her Lord. Okay? Just as there were many anointed ones, there's only one, the Christ. As there were many lords, there's only one, the Lord Christ. In the Hebrew, we had the personal name for the Lord, which was Yahweh or Jehovah, Lord. The Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Lord, number 3068. The holy name for God that they wouldn't even pronounce. They would substitute Adonai instead of Yahweh when they would come to it in their, in their scriptures. The Lord. God himself is the Christ. God himself is the Christ. And this was promised. The Lord said to my Lord. We'll come to some of these issues. And the Pharisees had no answer for it. When Christ would grill them and say, well, who is the Christ going to be? Is he the son of David? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, he's the son of David. Really? Then why does David call him Lord? Why does David call him Jehovah? When the Lord said to my Lord. So, man himself could not accomplish salvation, but God himself could. And, and the good news is that a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. Christos ha Kyrios, in Luke 2, verse 11. They wanted a Christ. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a deliverer, politically speaking, economically speaking, in earthly terms. Weren't all that excited about God being with them. <laughs> and certainly weren't all worked up about salvation, because, in their mind, who needed it? In their mind, they're, they're good to go. They're okay. They're Jews. They're God's chosen people. They're saved. As far as they're concerned. You know, it'd be like talking to a Catholic today. Oh, yeah, well, I'm in the church. <laughs> I'm, I'm covered. Why would they be interested in salvation? Because their whole concept is, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I belong was born here. I mean, I was sprinkled as a baby and I was confirmed and here I am. I'm following the sacraments. All right? The whole idea of needing a personal Savior and placing my faith in the finished work of Christ to the Jews, what do you mean we need a Savior? We're in. We're the chosen people. We're God's own people. Why would we need a Savior? And that's why... Um, so much of the uh, the uh, message of the baptizer, the message of Jesus Christ, was so uh, hostile to their way of thinking. And he said, you know, why are you so proud of God can lift up stones to be children of Abraham? You think he's impressed with who your who your parents were? <laughs> think he's impressed with your family tree? You think being a Jew is gonna is gonna get you into heaven? That's no big deal. That didn't go over too well. <laughs> when you get to John chapter 8, you get to the confrontational passages there and, and uh, the issues involved. Point C. Oops. How did I get there? Aha! I have an extra B. Don't need it. Ah, that's why. C. A validating sign, that is, evidence, is being supplied. A validating sign or evidence is being supplied. A baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. How would these shepherds know that this evangelism, this good news, was accurate? I mean, this baby's born every day. And 
In this era, there were several false Christs that had arisen. There were several so-called messiahs that had promised deliverance and had staged rebellions and done all these things. So how do we know this is true? How do we know you glorious angels aren't lying to us? <laughs> all right, well, here's some evidence. Here's what you're going to go find. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Okay. Now forget the, the, the vast prophecies of a virgin shall conceive and forget all these other things about Bethlehem and all this other stuff. Those were prophecies that spanned centuries. Okay. The Isaiah prophecy was 700 years old. The Davidic promises were 1,000 years old. The seed of the woman promises were 4,000 years old. Okay. This is something that they can check out tonight. <laughs> this is short-term sign evidence prophecy, if you will. It's just a one-night prophecy. Just you know, within hours, within minutes, you're going to go into town, and this is what you're going to find. But it validates the short-term signs, validate the long-term messages. This is what you're going to find. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And at that announcement, then, the choir, the chorus, becomes visible. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men of good will. Alright, we'll have to tackle the exegesis of that and some of the uh, text issues there on our next uh, opportunity, which will not be next week. It will actually be two weeks from today. No class next week. We're going to have ladies can still meet for prayer, uh, but uh, no Bible class next week. I'm going to be in Waco that morning for a, a pastor's breakfast. So uh, next class will be two weeks from today. There's two other points of study here, point four and point five, and I just don't have the time to get into it. The uh, angelic chorus here and the words that they sing... We'll examine, we will also examine it from the context of Isaiah 6, and we'll also look ahead to Revelation 4 and 5. There's only a handful of places where we actually have record of the lyrics of the angelic songs, alright? There's only a couple of places where we actually have the words written down for what it is the angels are singing. This is one, of, this is only the second time we have it actually recorded. Isaiah 6 is the first, and then we'll see other songs recorded for us in Revelation 4 and 5 when the salvation is actually achieved and when the slain lamb then appears before the Father for, uh, his glorification. Alright? So we will tackle that in two weeks from today. Before I close, do we have any questions? Mm-hmm. King James has swaddling claws. I'll look into that. Swaddling. Right. I'll answer that tonight. <laughs> All right, swaddling. Anything else? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, Ephesians chapter 3 says that angels are observing us all the time. Angels always have observation of the human realm. And... Um, No, they can't read our thoughts. Only God can look upon the heart of man. Yeah, but they can observe, and they can watch, they can listen, and they're observing us all the time. Uh, but And, you know, if, if you watch a person around the clock 24 hours a day, you get a good idea for what they're thinking. But um, but only God can look upon the heart of man. We know that, that angels are not omniscient. Angels cannot read our minds. But angels can put thoughts into our minds. And so that's, you know, the, the little planted ideas, the little injected kind of like... Uh, you know, the take a Botox injection or something. There's there's the fallen angel, um, you know, injecting that little idea into our mind, into our thinking. You say, well, where'd that idea come from? Okay. They can't read our minds, but little ideas can be planted. That's why we have to have our armor on, the helmet of salvation to guard our minds. All right.
Great questions. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for our time this morning, for your faithfulness in our lives, for the birth of our Savior. Father, for his willingness to come and, and to identify. Father, he could have come as an adult, sinless and perfect. Yet he came as an infant, sinless and perfect. And he grew as a child, sinless and perfect. And he grew into a man, sinless and perfect. And he ministered to disciples, sinless and perfect. And he went to the cross, sinless and perfect. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that by means of that, because of that, he identified with each one of us truly as our substitute, truly taking our place, truly understanding where we are so that now he might intercede for us day by day. And we thank you for such wonderful promises, such wonderful truths, such encouragements of the scripture. There's nothing that I'm faced with today that he does not understand. He knows what I'm facing. He understands it. He prays for it. He loves us because he's endured these things himself. And I thank you for that wonderful confidence in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.